let's open up now to Romans 11. And we're going to pick up in verse 25 with a message entitled, The Future for the Nation of Israel, Part 2, as we conclude this chapter this morning before we take communion together. And in verse 25 of Romans 11, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, we do thank you that your word has revealed things that are yet to come in the future. Lord, we pray that as we study today, we would understand more of those things that you've revealed. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the last several weeks, we have been considering together the nation of Israel. We began by observing their election by God in the past in Romans chapter 9. Then we saw their rejection of their Messiah in the present in chapter 10. But then we began to look at their future and their restoration in chapter 11. And the purpose of writing three chapters in this epistle to talk specifically about Israel was because the Apostle Paul did not want either his Gentile or Jewish readers to be ignorant, he says, of what is called a mystery. Because of their ignorance, they could be filled with pride. And so he was concerned that they didn't miss this mystery. A mystery in the Bible is something that at one time was hidden, but has now been revealed to God's people. It's not a mystery as if you could figure it out if you just had enough clues. You could somehow come up with the answer. It's not that kind of mystery. This mystery, as the Bible reveals it, is something that you can't figure out. It has to be revealed. And the Apostle Paul uses the word mystery 21 times in his epistles. And in each case... The mystery involved a wonderful declaration of spiritual truth revealed by God through divine inspiration. And there are several mysteries that are revealed in Scripture. In the fullest sense, the mystery of God is God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. And that plan of salvation was for both the Jews and the Gentiles. But Paul has pointed out some scriptural clues as he has been helping us to understand this mystery here within this letter. And the Apostle Paul was confident in the faithfulness of God to fulfill the promise that he had made to the nation of Israel, which included a glorious future. To be certain that his readers understood clearly what he was writing, Paul used several testimonies as well as illustrations to get his point across, this one point right here, God is not done with the nation of Israel. And so in verse 16, he gives us some illustrations that might seem foreign at first reading, but I'll explain. Look at verse 16. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Holy first fruit and a holy lump. Holy root, holy branches. Whatever could this mean? 
What is Paul referring to? The term first fruit is an Old Testament reference. It takes us all the way back to the book of Numbers chapter 15, where Moses instructed this newly delivered people. They just came out of bondage, and this is what the Lord said to them. It says, when you eat of the food of the land, that is the promised land, you will lift up an offering to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall lift up a cake as an offering. As the offering of the threshing floor, so you shall lift it up. From the first of your dough, you shall give it to the Lord, an offering throughout your generations. In other words, here it is. As they came into the promised land and they were now provided for, the Lord said, the first part of all that you have been given, all that God has provided, you take of that first part and you offer it back to the Lord as a sacrifice of thanksgiving for what he has provided. You take the first fruit of the dough, the first fruit of the threshing floor. You give it back to the Lord because he's given it to you. That is basically the principle that they were to apply. And I think it's a good principle even as believers today. The first part of your day, friend, give it to the Lord. He put breath in your lungs. He kept your heart beating through the night. Why not give him the first part of the morning? Say, God, this is yours. I just want to meet with you. The first part given back to the Lord. You know, Jesus, remember he said, seek First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. So this principle of the first fruit, you take of it and you give it back to the Lord and it is holy, it is set apart for God's purposes and thus the remainder is also set apart for God's purposes. The first part was holy and so the remainder is holy. How does this apply to the nation of Israel? All right, here comes the mystery revealed. Are you ready? The first part of the nation that was set apart for the purposes of God were the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They were the first part of the people, the founding fathers. And God made special promises and special covenants to them as the first people of the nation. And therefore, the rest of well, the lump, as it is in this case, or the rest of the people were also set aside for God's purposes. It started with Abraham. He was the first fruit. But there was more to come through his descendants. God accepted the founder of the nation, Abraham, and in so doing, he set apart his descendants also. Well, then the next illustration, you have the root and the branches. If the root is holy, then the branches are holy. The root is the foundational part of a tree. The nation of Israel was symbolized by an olive tree. That was their symbol as a nation, the olive tree. And the roots are the first part. If you have no roots, you have no tree. If you have no roots, you have no branches. You have to have roots. And so here it says that the roots were holy and therefore the branches that came out of the root were also holy. Who's the root? Again, as it relates to the nation of Israel, Abraham. Abraham, you remember, he believed God and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. He believed by faith and God blessed Abraham. And the Bible says that the branches that were to come from him were also to be blessed. 
the root was holy and the branches were also to be holy. Now, some of Abraham's descendants, they didn't believe in Christ as their Messiah. They didn't come by faith the way that Abraham did. In fact, many of them rejected their Messiah and crucified him. And they were then set aside temporarily because of unbelief. Abraham believed. They did not believe by faith. They were set aside like branches cut off temporarily set aside. But what did that produce? Here's another part of the mystery. Look at verse 17. And if some of the branches were broken off, that refers to those of Israel who rejected their Messiah, and you being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Don't boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you don't support the root, but the root supports you. Now listen, when Paul says some of the branches were broken off, he is referring to those of Israel who rejected their Messiah. They were broken off, set aside temporarily. When he refers to the wild olive branches that were grafted back in, who is he talking about? Who are the wild branches? I'm looking at them right here. You are a bunch of wild branches. All of us are. Gentiles, in other words. The wild branches that were outside were now grafted into the root by faith and became a partaker of the blessings that are found in God. And the fact that Gentiles have been grafted in by faith shouldn't cause us to be filled with pride, but with praise. It shouldn't cause us to become haughty, but rather humble. Paul didn't want his Gentile readers for one moment to think that they were somehow better than the Jews who had been set aside. There was no room for anti-Semitism. You know, Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, another Gentile church, he writes to his readers and he talks about their lost condition. That is, before they were grafted in. And he describes what they were like. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, this is what it says. Therefore, remember, you once Gentiles of the flesh, you wild branches, you, who were called, that was my addition, by the way. Um, so you get the idea, the connection there. Who were called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Here's what he says to the Gentiles. At one time, you were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off, you wild branches disconnected from, from any blessing of God at all. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's another way of saying, folks, we have been grafted in because of grace. In verse 18, Paul says, listen, don't boast. Don't you wild branches boast against the natural branches that have been temporarily cut off. Stop being arrogant is another translation 
toward the unbelieving Jews. Apparently, an arrogant attitude of anti-Semitism had already begun to surface within the Gentile church. And Paul says, hey, stop that. You have no room. There's no room for spiritual pride. It's a hindrance. It's a sin. Jonathan Edwards, perhaps you've heard the name. Maybe you've read some of the things that he's written. One of his most famous Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God message that brought revival. But Jonathan Edwards commented once on spiritual pride, and this is what he wrote. He said, quote, the first and worst cause of error that prevails in our day is spiritual pride. This is the main door, he said, by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christ. It's the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. And it's the main handle which Satan takes hold of Christians to hinder the work of God. Until this disease is cured, medicines are applied in vain to heal all other diseases. Spiritual pride, there is no place for it. Paul could see it and he said, don't boast. It's because of God's grace. It would appear that Paul anticipated a rebuttal from those who he's writing to, as if he'd heard it before. That is why in the very next verse, in verse 19, he'll, he says this, you will say then, he's saying to the Gentiles, this is gonna be your response to me. Branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off or set aside. And you, you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God. On those who fell, severity and toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. A rather sobering passage when you read it. Paul anticipated that some of the Gentiles might falsely assume that they were now so special and God loved them so much that he broke off natural, get rid of these and let's graft in the wild branches as if they were worthy of it. Somehow they were superior to the Jews, but nothing could be further from the truth. Their grafting in had nothing to do with race, ethnicity, social status, whether they were cultured or uncultured. Their being grafted in was a work of grace. Grace. Our salvation, if you're a Christian today, has nothing to do with what you've done but it has everything to do with what Christ has done. It is his grace by which you and I stand this morning. To those who were boasting, Paul said, you need to rethink this. You need to consider this because the natural branches were set aside because of pride and unbelief. And if you develop that same attitude, you could be set aside because of pride and your unbelief. We're not saved because of anything we have to offer God. We are saved by his grace. That passage of scripture always stands out to me. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, where it says this, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You think you stand. What enables you to stand? If you're one of those people that looks at others and says, man, I can't believe it happened in their marriage. That would never happen to us. Be careful. 
Man, look what happened to their kids. Their kids are out there. Wow, man, that would never happen to. Be careful. Take heed when you stand, lest you, lest you fall. Somehow you think it's because of you, or I think it's because of me. It has, it has everything to do with grace. Listen, when you see someone who is far from the Lord or who has fallen or stumbled or set aside temporarily, listen, what should, what should be our response? Here's our response. If not for the grace of God, there go I. If not for the grace of God, that's exactly where I would be. Folks, I personally testify, I stand before you today because of grace. See, God's grace saved me. God's grace sustains me. And it enables me. It's the grace of God his unmerited favor. And Paul did not want these Gentile believers to misunderstand that. Now keep in mind, as we wrap this chapter up, what was the main question that was asked? We've been at this for several weeks. Here was the question. Is God done with Israel? That's the question. And Paul has been answering it, building a case, going to the past, going to the present, now into the future, to solidify that God still had a plan for them. That brings us to verse 23, where it says, And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. God is able to graft them in again. For if you, now he's talking to the Gentiles, if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, Well, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted in to their own olive tree? It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Paul had hope for the nation of Israel. He's saying, listen, if they turn, if they respond to the gospel, if they believe in Jesus Christ, you know what's going to happen? They're going to be grafted back in again. Oh, they're temporarily set aside, which opened up the door for Gentiles to be saved. But God's not done with them. He has a future plan for them. And if they will turn by faith and believe in what Christ has done, they can be grafted in again. And Paul just gives an example. Look at yourself. Look at you. You were a wild branch and you were grafted in. What about the natural branches? It's a lot easier for natural branches to be brought into the olive tree than wild branches to be grafted in. And so if God did it in you, the point is God could do it in them. Here's the application for us. Next time you see somebody who's not saved, I can't believe that they're like that. Just look in the mirror and remember this. He saved you and me. And if he could save us, he could save anybody. They can be Grafted in again, but I want you to see something here that, boy, it just leaped off, leapt off the page when I read it, right into my heart. And it's, it's these three words, God is able. Oh, I needed that. God is able to graft them in again. If you were to look at the situation, As Paul described it, it seems impossible. How could they be grafted back in? They're cut off. How does that even happen? That seems impossible. And Paul says, God is able. What stands in front of your life today that you would say, I am incapable? But God would say, I'm able. God is able. 
There's nothing impossible for God, nothing too hard for God. We have to remind ourselves of that. Just those three words, God is able. He can do it. He can do it again. I'm so thankful for that, that God is able. I love that passage of scripture, Ephesians 3.20. Make a note of it. It'll bless you. It'll come in handy. Where Paul writes and says, now to him who is able to do exceedingly. Well, that's not enough. Abundantly, above all you could ask or think according to the power that works within us. Paul says, let me tell you about the one who's able. Well, how able is he? What's his ability like? What can he really do? Well, he can do exceedingly, abundantly, above. It's like Paul ran out of adjectives. What else can I say above all that you could even think about or ask him for? That's how able he is. When you don't know what to ask him for, when you don't know what to expect or what he can do, he's, he's saying, I can do that. You can't even think about what I can do. You couldn't even ask me because you can't see a way, but I'm still able. This mystery, it comes full circle. As we come back to the verse where we began, in verse 25, as Paul begins to solidify his case, close his arguments, and the verdict will be dropped that God's not done with Israel. I mean, that's just what's gonna surface and it's gonna be clear open, shut, all the evidence is in. Verse 25, I don't desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob or from Israel. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul points to the plan of God here for Israel in the future. And he says, this blindness that does not allow them to see Jesus as their Messiah presently, it's not irreversible. It's temporary. There's coming a day when the blinders are going to be removed that many of them will be able to see and be grafted back in. When's that going to happen? Paul mentioned something here that is significant, and it's this. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, that blindness, which is in part, will be done away with. The question then becomes, what is the fullness of the Gentiles? The Bible talks about in Scripture the time of the Gentiles, but it also talks about the fullness of the Gentiles. Two separate things. But the fullness of the Gentiles is a term that refers to the present age in which Gentiles are being saved. Folks, the church began there in Jerusalem with Jewish people. But the Bible says that they were to go into Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And the church is predominantly, mostly Gentiles. 
This is the time of the Gentiles in that sense that mostly Gentiles are converted. If you were to do how many Jews versus how many Gentiles, the conversion of Jewish believers is much smaller than the conversion of Gentiles around the world. So we are in a time of the Gentiles. Gentiles are getting saved. Gentiles are witnessing to Jewish people so that they can get saved. So we're in this time. But listen, this term fullness is a mathematical term. It means at some point, it all adds up and it's done with. The fullness, if I can say it this way, is full. It's full. When's that going to happen, John? I don't know. When the last Gentile gets saved, that's when it's going to happen. Well, when's that? Maybe today. It's going to happen. And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, when the last Gentile gets saved, guys, you know what happens next? The rapture of the church. The church is taken. The trumpet sounds. The dead in Christ rise first. I mean, at some point, God's going to, we're going to be taken. The church is going to be raptured out of here. The Bible says, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to be with the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these, with these words. First Thessalonians chapter 4. I find it very comforting. <laughs> but the point is, <laughs> the point is, it's going to happen. The fullness of the Gentiles is going to come in. I was thinking to myself, I mean, Lord, you know the day and the hour. No one's predicting it here. We just know it's going to happen. But my thinking is, why not at the end of the men's conference? Just, guys, it's so great that you're here. And then all the, we just, right then, it'd be an epic ending to an amazing day. But it could be before that. So what I'm saying is there's going to come a time when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, when God is done and the salt and light of the church is removed. And then the Bible says that the world will enter into what Daniel called the 70th week of Daniel. It's the last seven-year period of world history as it relates to the Jewish people. And in that final seven years, it's called the tribulation period. The nation of Israel will enter into a covenant with a false Messiah. The Bible calls him the Antichrist, the son of perdition. And they will enter into a covenant in the first three and a half years with this world leader. And he will help them rebuild their temple. Which if you've been to Israel, there's something there presently that stands in the way of them wanting to build it where they want. It's a huge dome. You can look it up on Google Earth. But it's this massive structure run by the Muslims. But somehow, I don't know how, people have different ideas, but they're going to rebuild their temple and they're going to worship once again through sacrifices. The interesting thing is there is a group of people who are waiting and anticipating, ready to set up the temple right now in Israel. And when we go there in April, we take you through where this place is. They're ready. Last time I was there, they said, you know what? We don't need the whole structure to be able to start worship. In fact, if we got the opportunity, <laughs> this blew my mind, if we got the opportunity, we could tear this altar down, we could walk it down the stairs, across the street, set it up on Temple Mount, in 30 minutes, we could be up and running. And then we'll build the structure after that. That's where it's at. Well, it's gonna be rebuilt. The Bible tells us that. But 
in the midway point of the seven years, three and a half years in, he's going to break the covenant with the nation. He's going to commit what the Bible tells us is called the abomination which brings about desolation. That is where the Antichrist goes into the temple and he demands to be worshiped as God. At that moment, the Jews realize he's not their Messiah. And they, are to, they run for their lives. As the Antichrist turns all of his attention upon the destruction of the Jewish people, and during that time, there's 144,000 Jews, the Bible says, that are going to be marked by the Lord preaching the gospel. There's going to be two witnesses that are going to be preaching the gospel. There's going to be an angel, the Bible says, flying back and forth, declaring the everlasting gospel. I mean, God's going to be working, and the people, suddenly, their eyes are going to be open. Blindness, in part, is now being removed. And at the end, we go from three and a half to the end of the tribulation period. Seven years in, the Lord comes back. Not the rapture of the church. That's where we're caught up. The only people that see him in the rapture are the people who are raptured. However, the second coming, the Bible describes, he comes back and every eye will see him. It's different, separate event. He comes back with his saints. And the Bible says that during that time, he will set his foot upon the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives will split in two. He will go down to the Valley of Jezreel for the battle of Armageddon and a sharp sword. It means the words that he speaks, a sharp sword will come out of his mouth and with it, he will strike the nations. And he will then establish his kingdom on the earth and you enter into the millennial reign of Christ. And so many of these Jews who were blinded, uh, Zechariah chapter 12 and 13 tells us this, they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will ask him, where did you get those scars? And he will say to them, I received these scars in the house of my friends. They'll recognize their Messiah. Blindness that they have in part is now moved away. And those natural branches who were temporarily set aside are now grafted back in to the root. It was a mystery, but God revealed it. Does God have a plan for the nation? Oh yeah, yeah, it's revealed in scripture. And it's as if Paul just ties in all the Old Testament passages and all the prophetic words. He brings it all together, culminates, it brings all this theology together and it moves him to this place where he just begins to praise God. Notice verse 28, he says, concerning this gospel, that's the good news. Right now, they're enemies for your sake, right? But concerning the election, that is God's selecting them all the way back, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers, the first fruit, the fathers. They were set apart as holy. God still has a plan for them. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also might obtain mercy. God committed to them all disobedience that he might have mercy on them. I mean, Paul says, amen, the gifts and the callings of God, they're irrevocable. God's not done with them. You understand that's the point. Says the Gentiles, look, he showed you mercy. He's gonna show them mercy. The gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable, verse 29 says. God called them, God made a covenant, God made a promise. He's not gonna renege on his promise, on his covenant. He's going to fulfill it, even though they were unfaithful. There are still, there is a remnant that is definitely going to be grafted back in. For a moment, pause right here, and I wanna take this passage, verse 29. The gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable, and I just wanna pause, and I want to share with you something personal. 
how God used this particular passage in my life. You say, well, John, you're not Jewish. I know, I'm definitely a wild branch, but let me just tell you how God used this passage. I was 21 years old. And wondering to myself, was I really called to ministry? Was that just something I came up with on my own? Was that an idea that I had or was this something that God had? And just praying through that and not knowing, is this the Lord, is it me? Is this what God has or is this what I, I don't know. And I remember praying and, and there were many circumstances in my life at that time at 21 that would seem to indicate you better figure this out now because you have a wife and a little boy and you got to do something. And at that time, I was working three jobs so that I could do the work of the ministry and provide for my family. And so I thought, maybe, maybe, I'm, just not, maybe I'm just not called to this. I don't know if I'm, I think I'm called. And guess what happened? This passage right here, God ministered this passage to my heart in that season, at that moment. The gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. And it was as if the Lord said, I, I've called you. This is my calling. This isn't something you came up with. And this calling that I've placed on your life, it's irrevocable. Nobody can take it away. This is what I've called you. Even those circumstances, this is my calling for you. And this was just one of those moments in my life. And I have to pause when I come to this passage because it is so personal. And it meant so much to me. And it still does. And God's made good on promise because here I am, surprised to everyone, including me. But that's his calling. It's irrevocable. Well, finally, Paul's theology about this mystery brings him to a point of doxology and worship. He realizes the plan of God, he sees it being fulfilled. He sees the scriptures coming together and this understanding of solid theology leads him to praise and worship of God. And that's always where good theology should lead you, to praise and worship God. It says here as we conclude this hymn of praise in verse 33, oh, the depths of of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And then he asks several questions. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Many of us have tried to become God's counselor. Lord, I, I just want to counsel you on what you should do in my life. This is what I think. Who's become his counselor? And then he says, who is first given to him? And it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. This, this is just this hymn of praise. Paul just says, Lord, as I look at this plan of the Jews temporarily turning from you, and yet, it opens up the door for the Gentiles to get saved 
And although they're temporarily blinded, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come and they're removed, then, the, then they're grafted back in. And then your kingdom, Lord, it's just too much. Lord, you, you are amazing. I don't even know all your ways or understand your mind. No one could come up with this but you. That's really where Paul's at at this point. He comes to this place having contemplated God's great plan for salvation for both Jews and Gentiles. All he could do was worship. And, and what happened is he understood that God is so wise that only God could take the fall of the nation of Israel and turn it into salvation for the world and then bring Israel back around at the end. I mean, only God could do that. And he just praises God, even though he doesn't fully understand it. He appreciates it. That passage right there, who has known the mind of the Lord, I realize that some of God's ways are past finding out. When I, guys, when I read the scriptures, that passage right there where it says his, his ways past finding out, I come to the Bible with that preface, with that understanding. Some of his ways, they're past finding out until I'm there with him and I see him as he is. So there are certain things I know that I don't fully understand. But many of his ways I do understand. And the mysteries are revealed, especially the mystery of salvation. And we have the opportunity now to remember that, to remember God's plan of salvation fulfilled in the person of Christ. We want to prepare our hearts for communion. Folks, think about this, and then we'll pray. The Bible says that Jesus, listen, he was the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. Before the world was ever created, before light was spoken into existence, in eternity past, God always had a plan of how he was going to save mankind. That, I, like Paul, I just say, Lord, who has known the mind of the Lord? How do you even figure that? How did you, how did you know? He always had a plan. He always was in control. And what, what comfort does that bring to me today? If God always had a plan and God was always in control, listen, God has a plan for you and a plan for me. And today we get to remember what he did at Calvary. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for this amazing, marvelous mystery that you've unveiled and revealed to us. Or we couldn't have figured it out. We couldn't have come up with the plan because we don't know your mind, Lord. We don't know all your ways. And yet you revealed even the deep things of God through your word. And Lord, it is a mystery that you would save people like us. But we're so grateful, so thankful, Lord. And today we choose to remember you. In Jesus' name, amen.